Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, as uh, I'm sure most of y'all know who I am, my name is Christian Shippey. It's actually S-H-I-P-P-E-E. Um, I have to say it that way or people think I stutter. Uh, it was misspelled before. And um, about 10 years ago, I remember uh, Rami Danieli gave a drosh on today's Pedershaw. And as I was working on what I wanted to say today, I realized that I was actually starting to say a lot of things that paralleled what Rami had said. So if you guys were around back then and have a very good memory, some of this may sound a little familiar. So I'm not plagiarizing, I'm just borrowing from the same source material. And it's, you know, and I just want to say that it's always a, both a pleasure and a challenge to speak before y'all. Uh, I can't tell you so many people that come up to me and, and have very high expectations of today. And uh, it's a pleasure because I know this congregation, we know our Bibles very well. And so instead of me just giving a bunch of fluff, I can actually delve into very deep things in the scriptures. It's also a challenge because this congregation knows this Bible very well. And I can't just give you a bunch of fluff. And, uh, and if I say something that uh, may be wrong, I will hear about it. So uh, hopefully God will be with my words today for his glory, not, not for my own. Amen. You know, uh, I, I grabbed my Bible. I was thinking about this as I was getting ready. And uh, 25 years ago, my friend from high school, Richard Herod, he gave me this Bible on my 17th birthday. And uh, this was actually the first Bible anyone ever bought me. Before then, I just used whatever paperback Bibles we had at home. And it was a precious gift, leather cover, had my name in gold. I didn't know they did that, actually. And he wrote on the inside cover, presented to Christian P. Shippey, Happy 17th Birthday, by Richard A.D. Herod, Jr. And that was in, two, uh, in uh, 1993, actually. And uh, this is a Words of Christ in Red King James Bible, both Old, so-called, and New Testament. And I remember distinctly reading these pages that night. And I wanted to know as much about God as I could. The problem is, is that there are no red letters before the book of Matthew. And so... I began to read Matthew first. I'd read the Bible before, but I really wanted to now know it in my new Bible. And the church I went to kind of had the opinion that the so-called Old Testament, which, by the way, that's an inaccurate term, and I don't like it, so I may say Tanakh or the Hebrew Scriptures, but they had this attitude that the Hebrew Scriptures was kind of an interesting but no longer really applicable prelude to the New Testament. And so I was reading Matthew, and I recall distinctly that night in bed reading Matthew 5, 43, where Yeshua said, You have heard it was said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. And I had read that before. But for some reason, when I read it in this Bible a certain thought process began in my brain. Because I was taught in my church that God chose Israel to be his people and he gave them a law and they couldn't keep that law. That he gave them sacrifices to take care of their sins and it became a huge mess and so God rejected them and replaced them with the church. And that Jesus then did away with that law And made a new law, the law of love. And we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. And I was actually taught that the law, or Torah, said to hate your enemy. So when I read it that night, I was like, oh, I want to find that passage. And there was a problem. It ain't there. The Torah doesn't command us to hate our enemies. And the truth is, that actually became a stumbling block for me. I was actually, I wasn't going to really mention this today, but I mentioned it in the lobby, so I'll go ahead and say it. Um, I'm sure you all know that I'm a lawyer. 
I did very poorly in school. Through high school, I made the honor roll once. In one year, I flunked four classes. And my father was sick. My father got sick when I was 14. He had esophageal cancer. They didn't expect him to live to see me graduate from high school. But we prayed for him a lot. And if I saw my father once during the day, if he said one thing to me, he would say, go to college, get an education. Literally, if he said one thing. Well, my father's still alive. He's 80 years old. And I remember when I was 18, I took the ASVAB, which is the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery. Say that really fast three times. And I did extremely well. And so the Navy was trying to recruit me to become a nuclear engineer. And before we went out to talk to some recruiter, my father, who was in the Army for 20 years, and my little brother was a captain in the Army, my two older brothers were in the Army, my older sister's a sergeant major, my father sat me down and said, Son, we have a long and proud military tradition in our family, and I was really hoping you'd be the first to break it. And I said, well, what do you want me to do, Dad? And he said, I don't know. What did I tell you? Go to college. Be a lawyer or something. And so I got into Texas Tech, and my first semester, I think my GPA was a 2.8. You don't go to law school with a 2.8. And I was so disappointed in myself. And I love my father very much. And I remember asking God, I said, God, you have to help me. I'm not smart enough for this. Please help me become a lawyer and I'll use whatever skills you give me for your glory. And I started making straight A's after that. And um, took the LSAT. I scored extremely well. UT Law School. Graduated with honors. Federal clerkship. But there was a problem with going to law school. The problem actually relates to that night I read Matthew 5.43. The problem is that law school teaches you how to think. The law school admissions test has no law on it. It's basically a glorified IQ test. They want to know, are you smart enough to learn how to think like a lawyer? And when you're in law school, they use this thing called the Socratic method. They ask you questions. They teach you by questioning you to force you to think. And I began to outthink myself from the scriptures. Because I remembered that I was taught that the law said to hate your enemies. But Jesus said something different. And I began to question a lot of other things. In fact, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And I started to slip into the flesh. And I remember the day, it was September, I think it was 2001. I was in Pensacola for a federal clerkship. And I was in my apartment, and I was feeling pretty depressed. And I had this nagging sensation about not having peace with God. I didn't know at that point if I believed in anything. Except this vague notion of a God. And I did something I'd not done in a long time. I I said a small prayer. I said, God, if you're there, you have to show me. Because I don't know if I believe in anything anymore. And then I picked up the remote. And I turned on the television. And they were talking about... Those PBS, they're talking about the lost tomb of Christ. And it was a secular show. And they were talking about him as if he were dead. And maybe we'll find the body. And I saw this and I scoffed. And I said out loud, well, that's stupid. The tomb is empty. (laughs) What did I just say? The tomb is empty. And that day changed my life. And I realized I have to rethink what I was taught in the scriptures. I have to study Hebrew maybe and study some Greek and, and try to figure it out. And what I came to realize is there are no inconsistencies in the scripture. If you think there is an inconsistency, it's because of your lack of understanding, not because of what the scripture says. And what I came to realize is there is something very deep, very hidden in the scriptures. There is something, a mystery that goes back to the foundations of the earth. And I realized that many of the things I was taught, I believed, was because the people who were teaching me, they themselves didn't really understand this. 
they had a notion that Jesus was Yeshua, was God's son, and he died for our sins. But what does that really mean? I remember reading this Bible, and, you know, it kind of assumes that you know certain things. You're supposed to know about Messiah. They, they seem to think that you know this. They don't explain it. And what I want to talk to you today is that mystery. And my hope is, is that maybe we can look at the scriptures with new eyes and see there are no inconsistencies and try to understand what the Torah is really about. And that's why I call today's drosh, Open My Eyes, Understanding the Mystery of the Torah. You know, I'll tell you, I actually can't use this Bible anymore because I'm technically a middle-aged man. And I've had two doctors tell me I need bifocals. And they're wrong. I just need to read farther. (laughs) But if you wear glasses, you know that glasses distort the light so that your eyes, which are not able to focus, can see. But if you ever wear glasses that are not your prescription, can you see? No, you can't. And what I believe is happening, what I believe the people who taught me when I was a child were doing is they were reading the scriptures. They could not understand what it was really saying, and so they wore glasses called religion. What do I mean by that? I think religion is when we are trying to understand and then explain spiritual things in our flesh. And when you do that, you will fall short. You will miss it. A lot of people wear the spectacles of religion when they read the Bible. Most people do. To some extent, I think we all do. A lot of people read the writings of Paul with these spectacles, and they say, oh, well, Paul's saying that God changed his mind. There's a new way, a new law, and that thing is done away with. And the problem with that is when you don't have any guidance in your life on how to live, then you will, could potentially slip into lawlessness. And on the other hand, you have the people who wear the spectacles of legalism, And they say, all I need is to obey the commandments. I personally know people who have left the faith thinking all they have to do is keep the commandments. And that's a very scary place to be. And I know people who tried to keep these commandments and couldn't and ended up abandoning their faith. But I think if we take off the glasses of religion, and ask God to give us spiritual eyes so that we can read his Torah. What did Paul say in Romans? He said the law is spiritual. If we open our eyes and read it with spiritual eyes, we can understand. And when you read it, you will see that there is a mystery in the Torah. It's Actually, there's lots of mysteries. Paul talks, he likes the word mystery, the mystery of faith, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Messiah. The, you know, it's all over the place. The word mystery in Greek is mysterion. It, in English, when we hear mystery, we usually think of something bad, right? Comedian Dimitri Martin once said, why are there no positive mysteries? It's always who stole the diamond or who killed the butler. It's not who made cookies, right? <laughs> Someone made my room, right? That's not what we typically think of with mysteries. But there are positive mysteries. The word mystery in Greek means something that is hidden or secret. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, you'll see that Paul says, We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world. He says that God revealed these hidden things to us by his spirit. In fact, Yeshua himself, he was kind of a mysterious guy, right? What does it say in Matthew chapter 13? It says, verses 34, 35, All these things Yeshua spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundations of the world. 
But he tells us in Luke chapter 8, verse 10, Yeshua, speaking to his disciples, said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. I do believe that God will reveal his mysteries to us. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever. So that we may what? Do all the words of this Torah. So let's dive into this topic, and I want to dive into it if I have time. I mean, I have two and a half hours, so we should be okay. But... um, Let's dive into our parasha. We're, we are in parasha re'eh. And I'm assuming everyone understands my terminology, but let me just briefly explain. You all know what I mean when I say Torah, right? Um, typically, it's translated as the law, because in Greek, the word for Torah is nomos, which means law. And it's an incomplete translation as best, because there are laws in the Torah, but there are also various stories in the Torah as well. And we're going to read from Parashah Re'eh, which is part of the Torah. Who here reads their Parashah every week? Well, good. I want to see more hands the next time I ask that question. Because my hope is, by the end of today's discussion, you'll have a better understanding about what the Torah is really telling us. So, Parashah Re'eh is in Deuteronomy. And the context, if you read your Bible, should be clear. Moses has been told, you will not enter the promised land. Joseph, not Joseph, Joshua, my son's name, Joshua, he will lead the people in. And I'm, spoiler alert, but I think there's a reason for that. I think it's because Moses is a picture of the law. In fact, when Yeshua speaks of Moses, he's using Moses as a metonym to mean the law. The law will get you through the wilderness, but it won't bring you into the promised land. Right? Joshua, Yehoshua, is a picture of Yeshua. Yeshua gets you into the promised land. The law will not get you into the promised land. So Moses was told, you will not enter the promised land. And so he's giving his final charge to Israel. They're on the plains of Moab, across from Jericho. They're going to cross over. And he is re-explaining God's commandments. That's why it's called Deuteronomy. It's from the Greek Deuteros Nomos, second Torah. And when we get to Parashah Re'eh, you'll see he says, See, the name of our Parashah, Re'eh, see. It's a command form of the word Ra'ah, which means to see, but it actually means to see in the sense of to ponder or inspect. See carefully. See clearly. And I think God is calling all of us to Re'eh, see what he's really trying to tell us in his scriptures with spiritual eyes. See, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you will listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today, and the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known. And it shall come to pass... When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, that you shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ival. By the way, there is a city that lies between these two mountains. Anyone know the name of that city? Shechem. That's right. That's where Jacob went and built houses and built a well. And then his daughter Dina was raped and... You know what happened after that, and he had to leave that area. That's in Shechem. That's important. Are they not across the Jordan, west of the way toward the sunset, in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arba, opposite Gilgal, beside the oaks of Moreh? For you shall cross over Avar, and by the way, the word Hebrew, Ivri, it comes from Avar, one who crosses over, because Abraham crossed over. For you shall cross over the Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall possess it and live in it. 
And you shall observe to do all the statutes and the judgments which I am setting before you today. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall observe to do in the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountain and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their asherim with fire. And you shall cut down the graven images of their gods and destroy their name from that place. You shall not act like this towards the Lord your God. And when God leads you, when your Joshua, Yeshua, leads you into the promised land, he is telling you to do the same thing. Do not worship God as the pagans worship their gods. But you shall seek the place. Makom. Hamakom is the place. You know, in Jewish rabbinic literature, they don't want to use the name of God a lot. So they'll say Hashem, which means the name. Did you know that another name for God is Hamakom? And like the mourner's prayer and Shiva, they actually say Hamakom, the place, as a reference to God. But you shall seek the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all of your tribes to put his name for his dwelling. And there you shall go. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all that you put your hand to, you and your households, wherein the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do what we are doing here today. What are they doing? Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not yet come to the rest, the menucha, and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. Now, God says that we are not to worship him anywhere we want. We're to go to a place to worship him and to bring our sacrifices. Where is that place? Anyone know? It's Jerusalem. The Torah doesn't tell us that, but the other scriptures do. In fact, read 2 Chronicles chapter 33. It discusses an unrighteous king named Menashe, which by the way means forgetful. And it says, it actually parallels our parashah, except it says that he built altars to Baal. And he set up sacred pillars. And he made for himself asherim. And in verse 7 it says, He placed an idol in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So we know he's talking about Jerusalem. But there is a problem with today's parashah. Do you all understand what the problem might be? Do we have a temple today? Instead of a temple, we have the Dome of the Rock and the Alaska Mosque, right? Is God's name in Jerusalem today? What did Yeshua say? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather thee as a hen gathers her chicks. But you were not willing. You will not see me again, O Jerusalem, until you say, Baruch haba. Beshem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it will happen. God's name will be restored. What do we do in the meantime? How can we live out the commandments that Re'eh sets forth before us with no temple, without access to Jerusalem? You see, there's kind of a, a problem. The problem is. There's no practical way we can obey God 
because it's only existing on a theoretical level. It's not on a practical level. And so people will put on their religious glasses and they say, oh, don't worry about it. It's been done away with. Or they'll say, well, we'll make some legalistic technical argument and say that instead of sacrifices, we say prayer and that acts as a sacrifice temporarily. Or could it be that maybe there is something greater in our parashah? Could it be that there is something hidden in our parashah that you need to have spiritualized to see? That God is saying, Re'eh, see, look what I am really trying to tell you here. My answer to you is yes. So let's turn in our Bibles to John. Now before I delve into this too much, let me give a little bit of a contextual background. I'm going to talk about John chapter 4, but I believe John chapter 4 is related to and parallel to John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Yeshua has a discussion with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a leader of the Jews. He is at the pinnacle of Jewish society. And Yeshua speaks to him in parables. He says to him, Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, how can a man when he's old re-enter his mother's womb and be born a second time, right? And I ask people, why do you think Nicodemus said that? And you know what 95% of people say? He took Yeshua literally. No, Nicodemus isn't a moron. Back then, and by the way, those 5% say I don't know, right? Back then... That's how people taught. They taught in parables. Yeshua didn't make it up. The Pharisees taught in parables. They taught in metaphors. Nicodemus knew Yeshua was speaking to him in a parable. He was responding with his own parable. Because in the Jewish religious mindset, to be born again means to convert to Judaism. That's not what Yeshua was talking about. He is speaking on a spiritual level. Nicodemus responding on a religious level was actually saying to Yeshua... Why do I need to convert to Judaism? I'm already Jewish. They're speaking in parables. And then Yeshua reveals the truth, the spiritual truth to Nicodemus. The same thing happens in John chapter 4, but now it's opposite. Instead of it being a leader of the Jews, Jews, the pinnacle of society, it's now the scum of society. He talks to an unnamed Samaritan woman. And he says to her, I'll give you living water. We'll, we'll read it in a moment. And I ask people, why did the Samaritan woman respond, where will you get this living water? And you know what they tell me? The same thing about Nicodemus. She took him literally. No, give this lady some credit. She isn't that dumb. She knows Yeshua is talking in a teaching way. So I want you guys to take off your religious classes and open yourself up to something spiritual. And before I can also explain it, let me explain the Samaritans because I, I found out that not everyone knows who the Samaritans are. And I'll try to be brief. But you know that after King Solomon died, his kingdom through his son became divided. Right? Between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And the north, they didn't want to keep going to Jerusalem, the place where God chose to put his name. Because they would maintain a connection to the south. They wanted to be independent. So they began to worship God where? Where? They didn't want to worship. Right. Yeah, exactly. And they displeased God. And they were taken into captivity. And new people were brought into the land. And they had all these curses put upon them. And so they said, hey, we need to know how to worship the gods of this area. And so they brought back some of the Levites and they taught them. The problem is, and by the way, the word Samaritan comes from shamerin, from the root word shamar, which means to guard. They called themselves Samaritans because they thought they were guarding the Torah. The Samaritans have the Torah. They still exist to this day in Israel. There's like less than 300 of them left. But the same Samaritans, descendants of the people that Yeshua spoke to, still exist. They, their Torah isn't even written in Aramaic letters like the Jewish Torah. They actually have it in the Paleo Hebrew letters. 
But there is a big difference. Remember where I said they came from where they were taught? They merged the ninth and 10th commandments in their Torah together. And they have a new 10th commandment. And that new 10th commandment is going to be what we're going to talk about. So let me read it. It's a bit of a mouthful. This is the 10th commandment in the Samaritan Torah. And it shall come to pass when the Lord your God will bring you into the land of the Canaanites to which you shall go to take possession of it. You shall erect unto yourself large stones and you shall cover them with lime and you shall write upon the stones all the words of this Torah and it shall come to pass when you cross the Jordan. You shall erect these stones which I command you upon Mount Gerizim. And thou shalt build there an altar unto the Lord your God, an altar of stones, and you shall not shape the stones with the tool. Of uncut stones shall you build the altar, and you shall bring upon it burnt offerings to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and you shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. Does that sound familiar? We just read that in Re'eh, didn't we? That mountain is on the other side of the Jordan at the end of the way toward the sunset in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arba, opposite Gilgal, beside the oak of Moreh, facing Shechem. So it's like they took Re'eh and they added some other portions of the Torah and they stuck this huge paragraph and called it the Tenth Commandment, right? And so there's a problem now. There's a problem between the Jews when they came back from captivity and the Samaritans. The Jews and the Samaritans, suffice it to say, did not like each other. They would have nothing to do with each other. Despite the fact they worshipped the same God. Why? Because the Jews said, we worship in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans, who were mixed with pagans, worshipped God on Mount Gerizim. That's what a Samaritan is, a guardian of the Torah. Maybe that should give some new insight when you read the story of the Good Samaritan and why that Samaritan who stopped to help the Jew is the neighbor. When you, it's almost like a Jew and an Arab today. That's how much animosity there was. And to this day, they live in Israel and they worship God on Mount Gerizim to this day. Let's read John 4 with that understanding. And see if this explains our parasha. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Yeshua made and baptized more disciples than John, though Yeshua himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So, if you have your mind's eye, a map of the Holy Land, Judea is down here. There were three roads. And one of the roads passed through Samaria, and then Galilee was to the north. And for some reason, he chose to pass. He had to go through Samaria. I would submit he had to go because he had to go about his father's work. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sikar. By the way, do you know where Sikar is located? It's in an area of a town we talked about called Shechem. Near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Joseph's well was there. And Yeshua, being wearied from his journey, sat thus on the well. And it was about the sixth hour. In Jewish reckoning, they count the hours from sunrise. So it's about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Let's pause this for a moment. What's wrong with this picture? When you read the scriptures, you will know that people went to the well in the early morning or in the evening. In fact, the well was like the water cooler of the office today. All the people would go there and gather and see their friends and draw water. In fact, it's also where the young men went to look for wives. A number of people in the Bible met their wives at a well. Why is this Samaritan woman going to the well in the heat of the day. That's right. I think she's ashamed. Remember when I said that she was the lowest point from the Jewish standpoint of society? We're going to learn that she, even in that society, was at the bottom. 
A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Yeshua said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy meat. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. I explained that. What does Yeshua say to her? Yeshua answered. She's wanting to know, why are you talking to me? He answers her and says to her, If you knew the gift of God. The word gift in Greek is charisma. A noun. The verb is charis. Grace. If you knew the gift of God. And who it is who says to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing with which to draw, and the well is deep. From where do you have living water? And this is when I ask people, why do you think that woman said that to Yeshua? Well, she took him literally. She thought that he was going to give her living water. No, that's not what's going on here. She's not a stupid woman. There's no living water in Jacob's well. Living water means flowing water. Jacob's well is a pit with water at the bottom. She knows he's not talking about that water. She recognizes him as a teacher. So let's understand what he's really trying to say to her. This is what I think. I could be wrong. But I think she interprets it like this and, and I think she misinterprets him slightly because Yeshua is trying to talk to her about spiritual things and she has her religious mindset. So we're talking about water. Water is a very common metaphor in the Bible. And among other things, it symbolizes the word. Right? Ephesians five twenty six, that he might sanctify and cleanse with the washing of the water by the word. It symbolizes other things too. But water can be a picture of the word. What does the well symbolize? The word for well in Hebrew, I see it spelled as beer. It's not beer. Uh, I wish. The word for well is be'er. Be'er comes from the root word ba'ar, which means to dig, but it also means to engrave. And by extension, it means to declare. In fact, the verb ba'ar is the literal word that you use to describe the act of carving letters on stone. So I think the well is a picture of the declaration of God's word, i.e. the Torah. By the way, in Deuteronomy 1.5, when it says that Moses declared the Torah, that word is ba'ad. In Deuteronomy 27.8, It says that God commanded Moses to write on stones all the words of the law plainly. That word is ba'ad. What I think is going on here is this Samaritan woman knows there is a controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans. And Yeshua is saying, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, he will give you water that's better than this water. Stagnant water. Well water. I will give you fresh, living water. And she's saying, oh, you're going to give me a new teaching? Where are you going to get this teaching from? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank himself and his children and his cattle? Do you hear what she just said? She claims Jacob as her father. It's a religious argument that she's making. So she wants to know, is your teaching better than my Torah? And Yeshua said to her, whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. What's he talking about here? This Samaritan woman knew He wasn't talking about magic water that will never make her thirsty. She knew he was speaking about a teaching. She says to him, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come here to draw. 
This woman, like I was and am, is a spiritually thirsty woman. She is so thirsty, she is willing to listen to some Jewish rabbi she randomly met at a well. She asked, give me the water. I'm tired of being thirsty. So Yeshua, you asked for it, right? He's going to now reveal, why are you such a thirsty woman? What does he say to her? He said, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Yeshua said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And he whom you now have is not your husband. And that you spoke truly. Right? Busted. Right? What is really going on here? When Rami taught on this, he had a very astute observation. She is a Samaritan woman, a guardian of the Torah. She was married to it. Five husbands. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But because she viewed it through religious spectacles, it did not satisfy her thirst. She was still a thirsty woman, just like she goes to the well. And so she gave up on it. She left. And now she's with number six. What does the number six represent? The flesh, right? The mark of the beast, 666. She's not even married anymore. Because nothing can satisfy her. She got no satisfaction from the religious institution that interpreted that Torah. And that is why she's at the well at noon. Because she is a sexually immoral woman. She's an outcast in her society. But remember what I told you. Men like to meet the women they wanted to marry at a well. What does Yeshua say to her? So he said to her, you've well said you have no husband. You've had five husbands. And she's like, whoa. This isn't just some teacher. So the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Gerzim. And you say, because he's a Jew, Jerusalem is the place where men Ought to worship. You see what she's doing? Yeshua is talking to her spiritually and she is stuck in a religious mindset. She wants him to solve a religious dispute. She's thinking, he's a prophet. Maybe he can tell me who is right. And Yeshua says to her, Woman, believe me. When Yeshua tells you to believe, believe him. Believe me. The hour is coming where you shall neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now. Now. He said this 2,000 years ago when the temple still stood. The hour is coming and is now where the true worshipers shall worship in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And I believe the mystery of what he just said, which I'll explain, opened her eyes And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. Where did that come from? I think it came from the Spirit. I know the Messiah is coming. And then there's an explanation in the Bible, which means anointed, because the Bible is in Greek. And it said, I know the anointed is coming, which means the Christ. The word Christ and Messiah is the same word. One time someone said to me, so do you believe Christ is the Messiah? And I said, you know, you just asked me, do you believe Messiah is the Messiah? That's why that parenthetical is there. I know the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will tell us everything. 
And I think she says this with hope in her heart because he is telling her everything. And what does he say to her? Yeshua said to her, I, the one who is speaking to you, am he. So, what does this mean for our parashah? What's this mystery I keep talking about? We read today in the portion the clear and unequivocal commandment of God that we are only to worship him in the place where God chooses to put his name. And Yeshua says to the Samaritan woman, because that was a pretty big point of contention between the Jews and the Samaritans, no. You missed the point. You don't worship. Jerusalem is a picture. What do I mean by that? God doesn't change. Remember I talked about the mystery from the foundation of the world? The temple that we read about, where God dwelt in. The sacrifices that were done there. The priesthood who served there never took away sin. It didn't do it in the days of Moses. It didn't do it in the days of David. It didn't do it in Yeshua's day. That's what the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to explain. They are a picture. They are a prototype of the true temple where God dwells. They're a picture of the true sacrifice. The lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, it says. It's a picture of the true high priest. Not born from Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. It's all a picture of Yeshua. This woman literally met Jerusalem. She met the living Jerusalem because God chose to put his name in his beloved son. When Re'eh talks about the Hamakom, where he shall put his name, that is a picture of him putting his name in his son. Does that annul the commandment? No. What did Yeshua say? Do not think I came to annul the Torah or the prophets. Right? Until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle shall no wise pass. Look outside. Is heaven still here? Is earth still here? He says, I didn't come to annul, but to fulfill. He is the fulfillment of the Torah. That is the mystery. That is why people struggle with religion. Because when they read the Torah, do they see Yeshua? When we read this parashah, did you say, oh, wait a minute, that's about Yeshua. When you read the story of Adam, did you know that's really a story of Yeshua? That's why Paul calls Yeshua the second Adam. When you read the Bible, do you understand that Joseph is a picture of Yeshua? Think about it. Rejected by his brothers. Put in the ground. Sold off to the Gentiles. Married the daughter of the Egyptian sun god. You know how Christianity mixed itself with pagan sun worship? Had two children. Menashe, the forgetful. And the younger one, Ephraim, the fruitful. And then God blessed, not God, Jacob blessed them both, but he crossed his arms. And what did he say about these two sons? Their seed shall be the fullness of the Gentiles. What? Ephraim and Manasseh is a picture of the Gentiles? Dun, 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 right? The Torah is much deeper than a bunch of commandments. If you read the Torah and all you see are interesting stories and commandments, you are missing the boat. You need to hear God say to you, look carefully, not with religious eyes, but with spiritual eyes. I got a few minutes left. These, I actually took these out of my slide because I, I talk so much I often run out of time. But I can read to you anyways. Okay, Christian, that's your interpretation. Give us some proof from the scripture. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'll read it to you. What's the, the backdrop? So King David, David from Dodi, beloved, 
right? He has consolidated his kingdom after his war with King Saul. And uh, he's back in his house, his palace, and things are going pretty well for him. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass, when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him, what? Rest. Menucha. Sound familiar? It's in our portion. The Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies. Then the king said to Nathan, Nathan, which by the way means gives, right? He gave. It's like Yeshua said, if you knew the gift of God. The king said to Nathan the prophet, Re'eh, see, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Do whatever is right in your own eyes. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Shall you build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in any house since the time I brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day. But I have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever have I walked with the children of Israel that I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel? which I have commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says Adonai Sevaot. Sevaot, hosts, means armies. When God calls himself the Lord of the armies, I pay attention. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, To be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. And have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name. Like the names of the great men who are on the earth. And I will appoint a place. For my people Israel. And will plant them. And they may live in their own place. And not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Has that happened yet? Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest. Menucha. From all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you. That the Lord will make you a house when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers I will raise up your seed after you who will come from you and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. And I can ask an Orthodox rabbi and say, what was God talking about? Oh, he's talking about Solomon. Really? Did Solomon's kingdom last forever? Did he bring Solomon up after David was dead? Who Put on your spiritual glasses. Who is God talking about? Yeshua. How do I know it? Read Hebrews chapter 1. It says, being made so much better, talking about Yeshua, than the angels, 
He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, this day I have begotten you. And again, quoting from Second Samuel, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. God is giving David the promise of Messiah and he's saying he is going to be one of your descendants. That's why they called Yeshua the son of David. And you know what? David knew it. He understood. He had spiritual eyes. He wrote most of the Psalms. Read them. They're all about Yeshua. David knew this promise was about Yeshua. Because if you finish the rest of that portion, 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says, Then David the king went in and, by the way, if I'm standing, if I'm in front of God, I'm going to stand, right? I think he was so overwhelmed with the revelation of Messiah. It says that he sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you've brought me so far? And yet, this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God. For you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. 2 Samuel 7.19 The distant future. And then most translations say, And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Bad translation. Look at the Hebrew. You know what he actually said? And this is the Torah of Adam, of man, O Lord God. Because David knew the promise that God made in the Torah is going to be realized in his seed. So what's the point? The point is, when you read the scriptures, when you read the Torah, I don't want you to look at it with a mindset of commandments. There are commandments. They're there for a reason. But they're there to teach us about Yeshua. Yeshua says, John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think, you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, the scriptures that, what, testify about me. John chapter 5, 45, 46, do not think I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses. Why? Because if you break the Torah, you are sinning, right? Torah and Moses, they're metonyms. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you've set your hope. Because they thought, I'll just keep Moses, right? For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote about me. Luke 24, 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Matthew, right? There are no red letters before Matthew. I think it all should be in red. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Luke 24, 44. And he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the Torah of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And I think if God has enlightened your eyes, if you can see, then you can be like Philip in John 145. I snickered because Philip in Greek comes from philo and then hippo. It means horse lover. Um, Nathaniel, of course, means God gives. And I always snicker because my wife's first boyfriend, the only boyfriend she ever had was named Philip. And so whenever I think of Philip, I think of horse lover. So um, he, he's a good guy. We're friends. Philip found Nathaniel in John 145 and said to him, we have found him whom Moses in the Torah and Also the prophets wrote, Yeshua the Nazarene, the son of Joseph. 
final verse, Romans 10, 4. And it's really funny because many, many years ago, someone tried to use Romans 10, 4 to explain why the law is irrelevant because his Bible said, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And what he didn't realize is that the word end in Greek, telos, doesn't mean something ends. It means the goal. For Messiah is the goal of the Torah for righteousness to everyone who believes. So friends, I want you to open your eyes. I want you to read the Bible. And every time you read the Bible, I want you to ask yourself, how does this teach me more about Yeshua? And if you don't see Yeshua in the Torah, or if you don't know Yeshua, you can talk to me. I'll be here during Oneg, or you can talk to one of the leaders. I can show you where Yeshua is in the Torah. And I'll conclude. I lied. One more verse, which is what I decided to name my drosh after. Psalm 119, 18. This is my hope for you and for me. Open my eyes that I may see the wondrous things out of your Torah. Shabbat shalom. Thank you.